0: Welcome to Radio Free Rabbi with Rabbi Joshua Aronson of Temple Judea in Tarzana, California. That's a very young Joan Baez singing, We Shall Overcome, at the March in Washington in 1963. Even by 1963, We Shall Overcome had been floating around in various iterations for about 60 years. It probably derived from a hymn written by Reverend Charles Albert Tinley, who served what at the time was one of the largest black churches in the country in Philadelphia. Tinley was known throughout the country as one of the greatest black preachers of his generation, and after his death, in fact, the church he served was renamed the Tinley Temple, which by that time was a mammoth multiracial congregation. Tinley's original hymn was called I'll Overcome Someday and was based on a verse from Galatians. It began... The world is one great battlefield, with forces all arrayed. If in my heart I do not yield, I'll overcome someday. The song's journey from a gospel hymn to the defining civil rights anthem of the 60s is interesting and long, and it includes stops in the union movement, the Highlander Folk School, Pete Seeger, Guy Carawan, Ramblin' Jack Elliott, the Weavers, And it finally emerged into American consciousness with Joan Baez that August day at the Lincoln Memorial. Looking back from this moment to that, there's a certain naivete and innocence about the song. We shall overcome someday. Standing on the steps on the Lincoln Monument, Dr. King and Joan Baez, I'm sure, genuinely felt that change would come and that someday would not be never. I'm sure that Dr. King hoped that by the time he was 91, which he would be this year, we wouldn't be seeing young black men, men who were not threatening or violent or carrying a firearm. I'm sure Dr. King thought at least those young men wouldn't be killed by the police with regularity and with impunity. To understand anything in this complicated world today, we need to be able to hold a variety of facts, and yes, I think they are actually facts, not opinion in our mind. And these facts do not always align. I, I think it is a fact that the lives of black people has changed. But the fact that Black people no longer have to ride in the back of the bus. The fact that there are numerous elected officials at every level who are African American. The fact that we've had an African American president and that there are a token number of African American billionaires has to be matched against another fact. There is institutional racism against blacks and people of color in this country. And in my view, this is a fact. What is institutional racism? We hear about that a lot. Well, simply put, it is the inability of people of color to access the opportunities of society in the same manner as the majority, and that inaccessibility becomes part of normal operations of institutions. There is massive and systematic racism against blacks, for example, in the criminal justice system. Peer-reviewed studies demonstrate that blacks are almost three times more likely to be subjected to physical force by police officers than white people on a per capita basis. Police use of force is a leading cause of death among young men of color. People of color are more likely to get longer sentences for similar crimes, more likely to get the death penalty, It goes on and on. There's no other way to account for this disparity other than institutional racism. But the criminal justice system is only one of the more obvious parts of society in which institutional racism is manifest. For example, legacy admissions to university, in particular private universities, is one example of institutional racism. For decades... The vast majority of college students were obviously white. For centuries, in fact. So legacy admissions naturally favors and still favors white people. The same is true of partnerships at law firms or accounting firms. Those decisions are, in 2020, largely made by white men. The logic that these partners have worked their way up the corporate ladder and have earned the right to make these decisions has to be weighed against the fact that people of color cannot easily get into positions of leadership because the people making those decisions are white. And the numbers bear this out. In 2018, slightly less than 20% of all equity partners in law firms were women and less than 7% were racial or ethnic minorities. And as we here in L.A. know, the same is true in Hollywood. In 2018, of the 100 top fictional movies, 16 were directed by black filmmakers. Obviously, 16%. And that number represented a high water mark at the time. Now, some would argue, well, that's just the way it is. African Americans, after all, have the same opportunities as white people, to become law partners or movie directors or accountants, but this simply isn't true. Success in Hollywood or in law or in accounting, even becoming an electrician, often rely upon a network of informal and formal contacts that people of color simply don't have access to. When the children of people like me need a helping hand, people like me simply pick up the phone And call someone. And rarely are we two or three degrees of separation from someone that can help. And we're all happy to do it. Who wouldn't do it to help our children? Well, you know who wouldn't do it? The mother or father of a high school graduate in a community of color. That's who. Not because they don't care, but because they don't have easy access to partners in law firms or accounting firms or, in Hollywood... They don't have access to Hollywood, even if they live only a few miles from Hollywood. No one, not a single person, achieves anything without the help of others. A mentor, an advisor, a friend, a well-placed word on your behalf, a little money, a bending of the rules here and a wink there. Everyone from Bill Gates to the President of the United States has benefited from the help of others. The challenge for people of color in general, and black people in particular, is that too frequently they don't have that helping hand. They don't have that well-placed word, and they don't have that mentor. And this is how institutional racism becomes pervasive and oppressive. Minorities can't get a break because there are so few minorities to serve as mentors or contacts And as a result, minorities can't move up to become mentors and contacts for others. What does this have to do with the death of George Floyd? Only everything. Only 4% of police chiefs nationwide are black. Only 11% of police officers nationwide are black. People of color are severely underrepresented in police forces around the country. Now we could spend forever parsing the statistics, But that's the bottom line. And yes, it's true that the police chief in Minneapolis happens to be an African American. But it also happens he's the city's first black police chief in a police force that is more than 150 years old. And there simply aren't enough black police chiefs or police officers and others in decision-making positions. And importantly, there's a pretty good reason Matter of fact, there are lots of pretty good reasons to believe that white people simply aren't going to solve the problem because it actually hasn't been solved. We could solve it. This isn't a problem without a solution. There are solutions, and those solutions are known by lots of people. And they're not all that difficult to figure out. But the people who could solve them simply haven't solved them. Every police force could just ban chokeholds today. There is no law that needs to be passed. There is no constitutional right for police to have and use chokeholds. Every police force could decide today that force will not be used against nonviolent criminals. We don't need car chases to run down a guy who was accused of passing counterfeit money or selling cigarettes, or illegally, or trespassing, or jogging. Let him go. Catch him later, or don't catch him. Those who disagree with this analysis will throw up lots of red herrings. Well, what about the rioting? What about the looting? Here, again, is where we need to be able to hold a variety of information in our minds that doesn't neatly align. Rioting and looting is bad. I don't know any thoughtful observer who supports it or thinks it should be a tactic in public debate. But the riots and the looting is not an excuse to fail to solve the problem of institutional racism. Rioting and looting doesn't prove anything. I've heard people argue that if they want to solve the problems, first let them stop the rioting or the looting. But in this sense, we know that they has essentially become a synonym for the N-word. If there's one thing oppressed people have learned, and that history teaches quite clearly, it is this. The idea that the oppression won't stop until the oppressed stop doing this or that is only a delaying tactic. If there's one thing that the oppressed have learned, It's that when you hear, if you just wait, the change will happen, you can be sure that the change ain't happening. And the change ain't happening unless we white people herald the change or get out of the way of the change makers. And the first step for us white people is to acknowledge the problem. Institutional racism exists. Now, if you're listening, you might be thinking, Rabbi, why aren't you talking about institutional antisemitism? Because after all, isn't there plenty of an- institutional antisemitism? And you'd be correct, there is. But today isn't about antisemitism. I've spoken out for the past 30 years or more about antisemitism. And the idea that we have to constantly mention antisemitism when we talk about injustice and prejudice against others is simply wrong. For me, as a rabbi, talking about institutional racism against blacks doesn't mean I'm insensitive to the prejudice against my own people. It only means I use the experience of my own people to be empathetic to others. That's all. I'm not in a suffering contest. I don't have to prove that the suffering of Jews is worse than or equal to black people. There's an infinite amount of suffering. Suffering isn't a zero-sum game. The fact that other people suffer doesn't lessen the suffering of my people. Today is about white people looking into the abyss and understanding our culpability in institutional racism. And that starts with acknowledging that it exists. If you haven't heard me talk extensively for the past 30 years about the suffering and oppression of Jews, then you haven't been paying attention. Let me close with this eternal teaching of Judaism that Abraham Joshua Heschel taught in his last interview before he died. He asked, What is the greatest concern of the Bible? Injustice. And what is the greatest concern of the prophets? Peace. Heschel was saying that no one will be free from oppression, racism, and prejudice until everyone is free from oppression, racism, and prejudice. And that is why the death of George Floyd matters to this rabbi. And that is the reason that deep in my heart I do believe we shall overcome someday. This has been Radio Free Rabbi with Rabbi Joshua Aronson of Temple Judea in Tarzana, California. Produced and edited by Dan Leonard.